when I went to NYU in, um, in 84 was the first year that NYU's television production facilities were as good as my high school's. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Starting as a lighter and later a designer for concerts and plays in New York City, A. Thomas Goldberg never imagined he'd be at the forefront of a new form of entertainment. But curiosity, necessity, and the willingness to take chances have led him to exactly that, a new frontier where live entertainment and technology meet. From the early days of experimenting with Ken Perlin at NYU's Media Research Lab, A. Thomas saw the possibility for technology and performance to converge, and while not immediately apparent, each new career experience was another step in bringing the two disparate disciplines together. Throughout our conversation, A. Thomas shares the excitement and challenges of his time at the Media Research Lab, and how that led him from artist-in-residence to researcher. We also explore how his work and career coincided with the rise of various technologies, from mocap to real-time rendering, that have shaped the work he does today, and he shares some insights into the future of this new form of storytelling. Here's our conversation with A. Thomas Goldberg. So I wanted to start by asking you about growing up in New York. Were you always like an art kid or was high school at an arts high school an accident? Like how did that all come about? I didn't really plan on going into, you know, a creative field really until I got to high school. And that mostly, you know, I grew up in a family where we were all sort of expected to become either doctors or lawyers or engineers or but I'd been, you know, drawing compulsively from a very early age. And by the time I got to high school, you know, I was very active in the school's theater group. And our high school actually had, this is, you know, in the 80s. And we had a, you know, full color three camera TV studio, which, you know, for 1982 was very rare. In fact, when I went to NYU in, um, in 84, was the first year that NYU's television production facilities were as good as my high school's. So, but it was really, you know, because, you know, I kind of, I'd grown up, um, you know, in just kind of in a, in a, in a world where it was okay to, you know, do creative things as a, as a hobby. It just, you know, you didn't seriously think about those things as a career. Um, it wasn't really until my, third year of, of high school when I was literally spending every moment that, you know, that I could either in the TV studio or, or in the theater that, you know, it just became clear to me that going to MIT for physics was probably as much as, much as I love physics, it was like, it actually made sense, more sense for that to be the hobby, given how much time and effort I was putting into, you know, into these other things. So was it hard when you broke it to your parents that you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had, there was, I got quite the, the talking to about that. I mean, and, and to, to be honest, in, you know, in the years that followed, you know, after I, I got out of school, you know, I spent a number of years um, working in theater um, in New York, you know, doing, currently working in, you know, design and, and so forth, but, 
you know, especially early on, not a lot of money to be made in, in, in an expensive city. So there were a few years where my mother was just like, I blame your television teacher for, you know, <laughs> I was like living hand to mouth. Later on, you know, when I was later sort of working at, you know, at EA and other companies and had kind of established myself, she was, you know, much less critical <laughs> of that path. So let's talk a little bit about NYU and film school. So you decide to pursue this artistic endeavor, which uh, you're really passionate about. Why film? Why NYU? I've always loved film, you know, just from an early age, you know, and all kinds of films, though clearly, you know, Star Wars came out when I was 10. So, you know, um, that was sort of a pretty big thing and kind of opened my eyes to sort of some of the possibilities. I just really sort of fell in love with storytelling and sort of visual storytelling in particular. Yeah, so when it came time to, well, once I'd kind of decided that that's really the the direction I wanted to take, then, you know, in my mind, it was NYU or USC. We're like, those were the two options. And my mother sort of insisted that I not go halfway across, you know, or all the way across the country. And so, I mean, I had applied to NYU. I also applied to sort of Ithaca as a, you know, as a safe school, but I, I, you know, I was fairly confident that I was going to get into NYU and I did. I mean, part of, I think why my mother was concerned was, you know, I graduated high school at 17. So I like, I had just turned 17 when I moved to New York city to go to NYU, which was, you know, in retrospect, way too young to be living in New York city, you know, <laughs> without parental supervision. So, you know, I, fell in love with New York. I mean, I grew up about 45 minutes outside of New York City, um, you know, so I'd spent a little bit of time there, but, you know, moving there, you know, I really fell in love with the city and then lived there for 20 years before moving out West. So. so why cinematography? I think it was sort of tied within, you know, as I said, it was like, I fell in love with visual storytelling. I I, I had thought when I actually went to, to school that, you know, that I would direct because that's what I was doing primarily in high school, but I was also shooting things. But you know, it kind of gets back to, you know, what I said about from the age I could pick up a pencil, I was drawing. And so just kind of image creation and image making was really kind of how my brain was wired. And so once I got to NYU, I guess really gravitated toward cinematography and sort of that part of it. Okay, so you graduate from NYU film school, cinematography. Now what? Was there even a plan when you were going to school about what you might do with this career? There was a plan. The plan kind of went out the window pretty quickly, but, you know, I graduated. Well, I got out of school um, and needed to work. I ended up answering an ad for, you know, a summer job with a traveling circus. And and as I said, I'd done a lot of, you know, in theater in high school and, and junior high. I hadn't really done any of it in in college. And, but the circus, I, I, you know, the, the, that I went to work with, which is the Big Apple Circus, which is a, a, this small sort of traveling circus sort of patterned after European circuses. So very much focused on the sort of theatrical versus spectacle. And I got a job on the lighting crew. You know, it, it sort of rekindled all the things that I kind of loved about doing theater. It was a, you know, a crazy summer, um, as one might imagine, you know, working for a traveling circus. But it also, you know, I also established a number of contacts that then once I, you know, once the tour was over, was able to very quickly get work doing, you know, just in sort of theater production and, and, and stage production for music and dance and theater, um, just based on those contacts. Though I did like a little bit of film, I just found that I was getting a lot more work doing 
you know, in live production. And, you know, and so kind of ended up in almost sort of the, the analog to just, I was ended up doing a lot of lighting design, which kind of comes back to, you know, it's sort of image creation for, for live performance. And I've always kind of really loved the sort of the immediacy, I could call it sort of the emotional immediacy of live performance in, you know, in film production. And, you know, we'll talk about it. It's like, I didn't actually get in, you know, get into animation until it was real time. <laughs> so, because in college I had taken one animation class and as much as I love as a, you know, a viewer of animation, I was like, love the expressiveness of it. You know, the kind of frame by frame, just like my brain, just not wired to like, you know, spend a week building, you know, 10 seconds of it, you know, of, mo of movement, really sort of the, the kind of intimacy and connection of live performance really resonated me in a way um, so that I kind of as within about a year or two, I was I was focused really entirely on doing design for live performance, you know, still shooting photography on, on my own, but um, that's kind of really where my career headed. Computer graphics actually ended up being was like a real complete like fluke kind of circumstances that led to that, which is probably coming up on your next question. Well, and that, well, this is exactly it. I was going to ask you about, you know, so you're working in theater and live music and live performance in New York City, where there's a lot of that happening all the time. It's like a rich playground for that type of entertainment and you're loving it. How do you end up back at school <laughs> working with computers? A friend of mine from high school had been working with a professor at New York University. And, and quite literally, like I ran into him on the sidewalk on Broadway one day and hadn't seen him like in a couple of years. And we got to talking and he was like, oh, you need to come up to the lab, see what we're doing, meet, you know, meet Ken. And like, sure, it sounds like fun. And so, you know, he took me up. I met, you know, I, that's when I met Ken Perlin and they showed me some, you know, some things that they were working on. They had a, this Zoomable user interface project. They had, you know, Ken was showing off some of his procedural texture stuff and, it all seemed cool. And, you know, so Ken and I had a few conversations, you know, he's always been very creative in, you know, even with his sort of focus on, you know, on computer graphics, it's always really been driven from the earliest days on, you know, from a creative point of view. So that sparked a number of conversations. And then what had happened was uh, a project had been started up by some grad students there, not even in computer, around computer graphics. Um, there was a, uh, the lab that Ken was part of was also tied to a robotics lab and a project had been started to build these immersive, what well, they were calling immersive environments then, which were actually sort of physical sets that had sensors and projectors and, you know, and speakers and things in them as a way of sort of telling stories through this kind of physical interaction. And so I kind of volunteered to help out with that from a sort of theater design standpoint. And it was while we were working on that that Ken began working on the procedural animation, taking the procedural texture work that he'd done and applying it to animation. It was one of those like, oh, while we were off in one corner, like building all these devices and projectors, it was like, I was going to, you know, I'd go over and see what Ken was up to. And, you know, and we just started talking about how that, you know, procedural animation and some of the ideas there, how that might actually get applied to, you know, creating kind of live, it's sort of live interactive, you know, sort of theatrical kind of improvisational animation, as we called it. And I remember for the very first project, which was the Dance Interactive, which he presented in the Cigarette Electronic Theater in 94, like my contribution was I designed the lighting for it. 
And given that, like, you know, it was two lights, really, but it was dance lighting. You know? So, um, you know, it was, like, it was like character made out of, like, you know, basically stretched spheres, you know, and, you know, running on a computer that cost $50,000. So, um, but that's what you could do in 1994. And just from that very first project, just sparked endless conversations about, you know, where we could take this, you know, how, you know, what kinds of interaction, what kinds of, you know, stories we could tell and what kinds of performances we could create, you know, from a, from a foundation of sort of a real-time interactive performance. And, you know, and as I said, you know, to do even that simple thing required a $50,000 computer. And as we scaled that up to include more characters and so forth, we ended up using computers sort of loaned from, you know, Silicon Graphics at the time, which were, you know, these literally million dollar supercomputers, which to me was like, you know, as I said, I was this theater guy who was just like playing around. <laughs> All the things that we were sort of exploring just really, there were very few people even looking at it just because it was just too expensive. You had to be in a, like, you know, in a research group to do it. Um, and it would be a few years before those kind of same ideas and same techniques would be then accessible, you know, to game developers and, and so forth. So, yeah, so like I started out there kind of, you know, became kind of the artist in residence for the lab. And then sort of the next step of that was, you know, we did that in 94, we did another project in 95 for SIGGRAPH, um, kind of an interactive project. And it was sort of coming out of that, you know, as someone who I didn't, you know, know anything about programming, I didn't really know anything. And so I was entirely dependent on the availability and interest of grad students to implement any ideas that I might have or to want to explore. You know, this isn't to disparage them in any way, but they had their own agendas and so forth. And, you know, the ideas that we were coming up with, just coming up with faster than we could recruit people to do it. And, you know, at one point it was in the fall of 95, I just decided that I had to learn how to do this I taught myself essentially by porting the work that Ken had done in this programming language that was that he had created. Porting it all to Java was a way to learn both how the animation system worked underneath the hood um, and also to learn a programming language that I could then. From that point on, you know, I kind of became responsible for it. And, um, you know, we ended up applying for some uh, research uh, grant funding from Microsoft. We got three years worth of funding and, you know, and at that point I was now no longer really doing theater and this became kind of my full-time job for the next three years. That hobby of physics really came in handy. <laughs> so there's a lot of these things that like, you know, that, that sort of reemerge. Nothing's, no time is ever, no learning is ever wasted. I, I think it's really interesting that even at the beginning when you know, like you say, this technology is so expensive that it's very limited on how you can use it and how many people can use it because it is so technical and complicated. But even at that beginning stage, you already noticed and seen the potential that this could have. Backup plans are not something that I really like to talk about, but can we talk a little bit about a backup plan? Like this technology could have died on the vine, like so much of it does. So was there like any thought at any point of, well, you know, I'm spending years learning this stuff and, and playing in this field, like what's going to happen if this doesn't take off? I didn't come to it as part of a career plan. You know, I had a relatively early but successful career in theater, in design, 
the fact that somebody was, you know, willing to pay me to play, essentially, I was like, I was, you know, and I was young enough, I was like, if this doesn't work, I'll just figure out something else later. But for now, I'm going to ride this as long as I can. Where else are you going to get that kind of opportunity? Um, we had no idea, you know, what the implications of Moore's Law were for computers and computer graphics at that time, you know, or how soon or how likely these things were going to become sort of commercially viable. And, you know, I think that we did end up spinning off the company in 99 to sort of commercialize the technology. But I think that if we hadn't felt like things were moving in that direction, I would have been happy to either stay at NYU and, and explore it further for a few more years, or, you know, who knows, something else may have ca caught my fancy and taken me in, in another direction. Now you've taught yourself and you're learning um, how this technology works. Now you're able to do this work on your own. When does the shift or when do you start to realize that this is something that is actually viable? And when does it start to be applied elsewhere? Like when, when does it start to be actually used more widely? Because I think for a lot of us, we were not really familiar with the timeline of you know, how this technology came to be. It just kind of like appeared one day and we were all talking about it. Yeah, so I mean, there are some essential building blocks to creating interactive animation, real-time interactive animation. Um, key among those are the ability to sort of layer and blend different animations together in response to input. We were playing around with other kinds of procedural effects, inverse kinematics and things like that, but really the core was, can you know, can you define behaviors that are non, you know, make them non-repetitive and make it possible to really sort of seamlessly and believably transition from one behavior to another? So just to kind of get at the core sort of technical foundation there. And so I think that some of the things that really signaled to, to us that there was an opportunity first was, you know, when the PS2 came out, it's when we first started seeing really sort of like 3D games on a, on a game console. The model was still, you know, you play an, you know, an animation plays and if you hit a button, another animation plays and it's just like, you know, so this idea of sort of procedurally composing animation wasn't present, but the fact that you could get things to, to render in 3D in 30 frames a second meant that if it wasn't there yet, we were very close to being able to like, you know, and that was really what sparked the spinning out uh, improv technologies, which is kind of that we spun out to sort of commercialize the work. And we were one of the first PS2 middleware developers. And really it was just looking at how do we then implement these in a way that you know, will work within the constraints of those platforms. I think at the time we were still, it was still a little bit early. There wasn't, you know, what we discovered, but there wasn't a lot of sort of computational room left after just sort of playing animations. And so we did some things to try to make it work. But I think that, you know, it wasn't really until we got to sort of the Xbox 360 PS3 stage that it then became really viable. And this was around the same time that I, you know, that I ended up at, at EA. So it was really when I got to EA that we were able to take all of these ideas that we developed at NYU and had demonstrated, you know, over the years and could actually put them you know, into practice in actual games that would ship. So. Was that what brought you to Vancouver, was EA? I came out to the West Coast after we ran the company for about four years. It was right during the whole dot-com era. And in fact, so the dot-com sort of bubble burst like halfway through our the, the life of the company. So even though we had some good initial traction and we weren't a dot-com, but VC funding and investor funding really kind of evaporated and it just became much more difficult to really push what is, you know, essentially kind of a niche, you know, 
not a consumer level technology. And as I said, I think we were still also probably a little bit early. You know, so we had a lot of very interested people who were, you know, beta testing and so forth, but, you know, it was still a little bit too computationally expensive to really, you know, put in a game with everything else. So, you know, we shut the company down in 2003. I came out to California um, originally to work for Sun Microsystems as part of their game technologies group. Um, I had met a number of people at Sun through some of the work that we were doing in Java. So we, like one of our focuses as a company was around doing 3D animation for web browsers. And so that was at the time VRML and Java and so forth. So when we were really closing down the company, I was invited to come out and, and help start this game technologies group um, at Sun with a focus on, you know, how can we promote the use of Java as a, as a game technology, you know, as a game programming language. I ended up spending a couple of years sort of traveling the world, talking to telcos and cell phone manufacturers. And really, I was sort of talking about it's like about as far as you could get from what actually interested me about game development while still being able to sort of like tacitly claim that I was in the game industry. But it was during that time I ended up meeting with some folks at EA um, who were building this sort of central technology group around supporting the next-gen platforms, which at the time were the PS3 and Xbox 360, and sort of leveraging the work that I'd done at NYU and kind of what we'd been able to and what they were trying to accomplish. Um, you know, it just was a really a perfect fit at that point. What exactly was it that you guys were working towards? The general sort of practice at the time was that every game had its own game engine and you know, essentially there was no real separation between the game engine and the game itself. Every studio, every game um, at EA was using completely different, you know, technologies, often redundant technologies when the requirements were relatively simple, you know, in the sort of PS2 era, that was fine. The teams didn't have to be that big and so forth um, in order to support that. But going into the sort of the PS3, Xbox 360 era, we knew that the game teams were going to grow. We knew that the expectations for sort of animation fidelity and interaction were, go were going to be that much higher. And so it wasn't really practical to continue that model of having every studio build all of its own tech. It also meant that the studio, the, the teams couldn't really serve as sort of multipliers for each other, right, in terms of advancing the technology. And so our intent at EA was really in the, the animation technology group inside of, you know, what was called EA Tech was to build an animation engine that could be integrated into a game engine that could then, where that animation engine could be shared across all the different teams. And we designed it to be extensible so that as individual teams, you know, extended it, wrote plugins for it and so forth to support their own requirements, that those plugins could then be leveraged by other teams, you know, and really sort of creating this kind of multiplier effect. As I always used to say, our advantage at EA at the time wasn't that we were necessarily smarter than everybody else, but we had more people than everyone else. And so if we could use that to our advantage, we could really accelerate, you know, what was possible in game animation. Is this around the same time that Unreal starts to develop as well? The first of Unreal 3 was starting to come into existence. It wasn't really quite there yet, um, but it was during sort of during my tenure at EA when sort of the first, I think, licensees outside of Epic began using the Unreal Engine. And so, as I said, I'd, I'd have to check to see exactly where the timeline lines up, but it was definitely sort of external middleware developers who were sort of looking in, in the same direction. So um, Havoc was another um, that was starting to build animation middleware. 
you know, and as I said, there were, there's a few others. We're definitely kind of on the path to kind of where we are now, you know, of having platforms that were, you know, that were shared and that where the platform itself is really a separate sort of foundation upon which you build games as opposed to being, you know, the game itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that that had started so early and especially at EA. That's amazing. So, you know, you're working with video video game companies at this point. And you've really found a niche for, you know, the research that you've done and the work that you've done in the past. When does the sort of creative bug of wanting to go back into like live events and live performance, when does that start to come back to you and you start exploring that? Or has that never gone away and just been in the background? You know, when I left EA, I was over at uh, Relic Entertainment. I was the technical animation director on uh, Space Marine, Warhammer Space Marine, which is a third person action title. After we shipped that, I ended up over at Microsoft, um, where they were in, you know, the early development on the Xbox One. And I was, I was invited over really to help kind of define the hardware requirements that would support the type of animation we'd want to do. And so that was exciting, you know, kind of back to like another opportunity to advance the bar, you know, a lot of the things that we talked about during, you know, EA, but we're still sort of out of scope or out of the realm of what was possible on a PS3 and an, an Xbox 360. It was like, okay, you know, all these ideas we had, like now's the time to see if we can make you know those viable. And I was there for a couple of years. I think it, it was at the point where the studio, which is now the coalition, I remember when we learned that we were going to be doing Gears of War. And I think that was as much as like I thought it was the perfect thing for the studio. I remember going into um, the tech director like the Monday after the Friday we found out and, uh, and saying that like, you know, I can't spend the next three years of my life making another game about huge guys in armory, armor fighting aliens in armor with chainsaws. <laughs> it's like, I've already ba- made that game. And I think it was also, you know, when we started, when I was at NYU, I mean, there, was, there were things that we were exploring, but it was definitely sort of the vision of what was possible from kind of an interactive performance. You know, that vision wasn't characters made out of like stretched spheres walking around in blocky environments. Right. It was around the same time, you know, that I decided that I, did, I, I didn't want to work on Gears of War that I really started thinking, okay, well, what do I want to do now? And what I realized was that a lot of the things that were, you know, that we kind of envisioned we'd want to see, like, were now actually technically possible. Photorealistic rendering was now sort of possible in real time. Not that that was the intent, the goal, you know, or the vision, but by virtue of the fact that photorealistic rendering was possible, it meant that all kinds of non-photorealistic rendering and animation styles were also possible in real time. You know, where the fact that they were digital wasn't sort of foregrounded by being polygonal or, you know, simply shaded or, or what have you. You know, it was kind of when I left uh, Microsoft, um, that's when I started consulting, which gave me a lot more sort of control over my time you know, in terms of sort of the, the projects that I chose and sort of the, in, in the spaces between projects. And it was around the same time. And to be honest, I don't even know, I don't remember exactly kind of how that connection happened, but I started um, hanging out at uh, Emily Carr. I had made some contacts at Emily Carr. They had a mocap studio there. And so just started playing around with the idea of, you know, using real-time motion capture with some folks at Emily Carr and some folks from uh, SFU, specifically Maria Lanton at uh, Emily Carr and uh, Tekla Schiffhurst at SFU, we just started just playing around making sort of dance performances. 
at Microsoft, we've been using the Unreal Engine, so I was familiar with that. Um, had you know, and had a lot of input into the animation system in Unreal, and so you know, I was familiar with that. And yeah, and so you know, suddenly, kind of a lot of things were you know had started converging. Kind of this the the, the image making that I loved about you know about filmmaking, and that emotional immediacy of live performance, like you know actually kind of came together and kind of in one place. And so I was a bit hooked at that point. And it just led to sort of, we just sort of pursued while I was doing, you know, continuing to consult for actually a wide variety of companies, which I, which was, you know, and, and still has really kind of been a, a you know, a, a gift to have been able to, you know, I've done a lot of work with Oculus or now Meta on a number of the um, projects for them. So worked for a number of VR companies, I've done work for Epic Games, more work for EA and various studios at Microsoft and other studios. And so just the wide variety of projects and goals and visual aesthetics, I've been then able to sort of inform kind of how I think about live performance. And yeah, so that just kind of led to, and that's, and so it's kind of around the same time that I'd started the consulting company that with some folks at Emily Carr, we started Pepper's Ghost, which was, you know, this sort of group of artists just with a focus on, on doing that. I always I talk about like dividing my time between the things that pay me and the things I pay for. <laughs> you know? And so I look at the consulting work as really, you know, these are, this is the things that that's what pays the, you know, pays for the creative work, but in terms of kind of professionally and, and emotional fulfillment, I think that they, you know, it ends up serving kind of both sides of my, you know, of my brain. A lot of the commercial work is around very, problem solving and supporting kind of the work of other artists and so forth and, and then be able to taking that um, and then informing my own kind of creative work. How did Worlds kind of that project sort of set the stage for what's come after it? Because that seems like it might have been the first that kind of opened the doors to kind of what the all the work that you guys do now, right? We had done a couple of, of smaller projects prior to that. So the key thing with Worlds was that this was the first time we actually looked at taking what had been, you know, performances in a really sort of self-contained and closed and exploring kind of what it means to be able to kind of connect people beyond just the single performance space, right? And so with Worlds, we had three different stages. Uh, we had performers on three different, we had audiences in three different locations. And so, you know, really that's kind of where the idea of, you know, not just connecting performers with each other and connecting performers with audiences, but also connecting audiences across spaces through the performances in which they sort of participate. You know, with Worlds, the audience was still relatively passive, but the, the sort of kernel was there. Each audience kind of had a different view of the show. They had, they sort of saw the world kind of from the perspective of the performers that they shared the space with. There was sort of no canonical God's eye view of that performance. It only existed in the, you know, the entirety and like the collective experience of, you know, of the audiences. And so that really led to thinking about other ways in which we could can then sort of connect audiences to performances and audiences to each other in the context of live performance. And that's really kind of informed the way we think about projects now. And certainly the work that um, I've done since in you know, a lot of the VR work that I've done has also kind of informed that. And so this idea of creating these collective or communal spaces in which performances can happen that aren't, you know, that aren't necessarily geographically bound, but are still about 
like live performers, you know, sort of in dialogue with a live audience. One of the things that I find really interesting is somebody that loves live music. Part of the appeal is this communal feeling of sharing this moment in this place with all of these people, both on stage and in the audience. And you're thinking about it from a slightly different angle, because now you're thinking, let's look bigger. Let's let's make this a larger communal experience. Thinking outside the box like that is not something that comes to people easily. When you're approaching a project or you're looking back at something that you've done, how do you start to conceptualize thinking outside the box and like looking at opportunities that, you know, other people might overlook? I mean, I think a lot of that comes from specific to the the work that, you know, that I'm doing comes from having come out of doing, you know, the live performance world. And I think this is true really for everyone. It's the, you know, for any endeavor, what makes your approach to that endeavor unique are all the things that, you know, exist in your life outside of it. If I were an opera singer, that would probably inform this in a different way. And conversely, right? So the work that I've done in games likewise informed how we think about live performance, right? In a way that would be different for someone else. So I think that my kind of unique background kind of informs the specific work that we're doing, but I think it's really sort of true of of anyone and why it's so important to not make that your entire focus or because then you run the risk of just kind of reiterating what exists, you know, if you don't have that kind of input and that sort of life experience um, outside of that focus. You do worlds, it kind of opens up a new way of thinking about creative performances and sharing those spaces. That actually really resonated um, and has really been a like driver for me as well, is the thing that's unique about going to see any kind of performance is the fact that you are sharing a moment in time, you know, even in, in the context of a sort of live virtual performance, there's a, dis, you know, even though you could record all, you know, everything and kind of play it back, you know, even in, in a real time later, there is something I think just very powerful about the experience of knowing that what you're seeing is happening while you're seeing it and that when it's over, it's done. And it's this sort of ephemeral experience that, you know, that you have to sort of be present for. And it's a lot of kind of what I think about when we, when we, as we sort of design these shows. I'm trying to figure out the timeline of when you meet Brett and how Showcat comes about. So I knew Brett from, you know, from when I was at EA, it was around the time that, that Brett had, uh, you know, started Animatrix. And so even though we had this mocap studio at, at EA, we had done some, you would know, used uh, Animatrix for some of the work as well. Um, and then just through the community, he and I had gotten started talking. I ended up designing a mocap studio for um, for group at NYU. So there was their, I'm going to blank on the name, but there was a, basically there was a research group at NYU um, and that Ken had, you know, had sort of started after that. And I helped them design their mocap studio and I'd worked with Brett to kind of to spec that out. And so while we were in that process and kind of following that, you know, he and I just started these conversations about live performance using real-time motion capture. And it was something that that he had been interested in for a long time. He had been involved in uh, Shrek on Broadway, which had, you know, real-time motion capture in, in the form of the magic mirror. And he'd actually been the, the mocap operator for that project. You know, and so he and I, we would just get together for lunch and talk about what we could do in terms of um, real-time and live performance. And so there were, there were, you know, a number of ideas, things that we wanted to, to try and talk about. 
at the same time, I'd also through my connections at, at Epic had a, had had a number of conversations with Kim Library, the CTO at Epic about the idea of doing circus performance using like doing like a live real-time circus performance using the Unreal Engine. He'd seen some of the earlier work that I'd done, some of which included circus performers. And so kind of all these things were kind of in the mix and they were all conversations. And then around 2019, just before Epic announced the Epic Mega Grant program, I had a brunch at the Game Developers Conference with, um, you know, or maybe it was the SIGGRAPH before the Game Developers Conference with uh, Kim, you know, where he said that there was a something coming up. Like he couldn't quite say what it was, but that I should keep an eye out for it. And so when they announced the Epic Mega Grant program, he encouraged uh, sort of me to apply for this project that we've been talking about. And at that point, there wasn't a show cap yet, but Brett and I sort of essentially kind of co-wrote this grant proposal for to Epic. And then when we found out that we were getting the grant, that it made sense to then sort of create an entity into, you know, that would be sort of separate from either of our companies that would really just be focused on the work, you know, uh, that we applied for the grant for, which was essentially to do this, this, this uh, real-time circus performance. This was also one of those things I called it. This was a kind of a, a stone soup approach to things, which is something that I'd like has served me very well. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of stone soup, but it's a children's story. I have kids um, where these, you know, people come into this town these, and they have nothing, but they, you know, but they say they, they can make stone soup, you know? And so somebody brings out a pot, okay. And they fill it with water and they put a stone in it. They're like making stone soup and they say, okay, well, you know, this is great, but if, you know, if we had carrot, this would be really good. And then someone goes and gets a carrot. No, but you know, if we had a potato, it'd be like, so, so that's kind of the, you know, when I talk about sort of the stone soup approach, it's basically, you know, you don't necessarily have anything, but if you can convince the people who have the different parts and, and so the, the approach to this was, you know, I went to, I kind of, I went to Epic with my proposal and, and uh, you know, the initial proposal, I, you know, I said, look, I think that if I can, you know, I should back up the, the preface this, which gets into the, the actual proposal is that um, I saw the seven fingers in New York a few years earlier and just had fallen in love with their approach to circus. It's really through theatrical approach to circus. Um, and even though I've seen kind of every Cirque du Soleil show and, and love those in terms of my own kind of sensibilities, the, the seven fingers really kind of really kind of hit hit on the head and you know as i said i'd worked for a traveling circus you know so i did like when we started talking about doing this you know a, a circus performance i knew that like i wanted to work with them and so i reached out to the seven fingers and i said look if you guys can sign up sign up for this i think i just cold called them like a you know and said i think i can get money from epic games and then I went to Epic Games and I said, like, if you give me money, I can get this like world-renowned circus to, to, you know, to participate. And so that's how like, you know, both sides agreed and that's, and that's how that all came together. And in the end, so we created Showcap as kind of a vehicle in which to kind of contain this, um, this effort. And then, you know, and then I have to use it sort of to, you know, explore kind of other opportunities and other ways in which we have to, to take you know, these and other technologies, and then this whole sort of creative approach to performance um, and to develop projects around that.
You have been working on this for the better part of your career. It's all kind of led to this moment where you're working on these interactive performances. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and nobody can go anywhere. And all of a sudden we're hungry for those interactions, those live interactions that we now can't have. And you guys are like perfectly centered to bring those to the public. Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic kind of affected or maybe didn't the work that you guys were already doing? It did affect it. It didn't stop us from doing what we were doing, but it did certainly had an impact. So our ability to bring the performers and everyone together and sort of develop things in purpose person was severely limited. Um, we kind of shifted track on that regard toward the sort of creative and story development, you know, during a lot of that early, the early stage, but it also created opportunities for us. So in fall of 2020 was when we did the sort of the first showcap performance, which was the Jill Barber show, you know, and that was something that like clearly just probably would not have happened without the pandemic. And from my perspective, it was, you know, it was, really sort of creatively fulfilling and uh, and successful. And we were able to like, we took the opportunity of doing this virtual performance to do more than just point a camera, you know, at a performer on stage and, and live stream it, but actually to sort of create this whole kind of world and story around the music. And so a lot of, and a lot of that kind of that thinking and that process would then inform kind of how we approached when it became more possible to do, you know, to really begin work on the circus performance, we'd already learned quite a bit about, you know, about how these different elements related to each other and kind of the opportunities that were, you know, afforded by it. So the technology has come a long way since the early years. What do you think are kind of like the key things that happened to get it to where it is today? So there's a few things. Some of them are technological and some of them are sort of a product of that, the availability of the Unreal Engine and Unity as well, but I mean, my experience has primarily been with Unreal, the availability of, you know, sort of commercial AAA level game engines um, and game editors essentially for free, you know, just open the doors to a lot of kind of exploration and creative development that would have been extremely difficult otherwise. So had those technologies all existed, but it only existed in proprietary forms or existed in a form where it was half a million dollars to license something, then it would have severely limited the kinds of work that we could have done and just the kind of sort of playing around that we could have done to sort of discover a lot of this stuff. So that was certainly part of it. Really, I mean, I think that, you know, it's the real-time rendering, real-time motion capture, kind of advances in performance capture to enable us to do very high quality performance in real time. So up until very, you know, last few years, and certainly during my time at, at EA, we didn't really have, mocap wasn't really a real-time process. We'd record it and then it would all have to be processed. And then even in the early days when, of, when mocap could be done in real time, it was still the quality pre-cleanup phase was, wasn't especially high. So, and it kind of gets back to, you know, for me, I can't get away from the fact that people are going to look at these things and go, wow, that's amazing technologically. You know, you really want people to forget that as early as possible. Right. Um, and so that's not going to happen if, you know, character, if the avatars of the performers are glitching out or twitching or, or, or so forth. So it's really a lot of, you know, a lot of it for us has been about sort of getting closer to that fidelity, both in terms of the possibilities, you know, from a rendering perspective, but um, in terms of the 
the visual look and style and type of effects and treatments we can we can add to the visuals, but then also in terms of the robustness of the motion capture solutions that we have. And then in, in particular, you know, when we look at, for instance, the show that we did with the seven fingers, you know, another critical sort of requirement that I sort of set for the project early on was that we wanted to have performers on stage, both in front of a live audience, but also we wanted to integrate video of live performers into the virtual experience as well with that kind of that mandate of this is not a tech demo, you know, that meant that I couldn't have performers running around in spandex suits with little glowing markers on, you know, with the, you know, and so it wasn't clear that it was possible, but like with so many things in my career, we, I never started off with the, is this already possible? You just assume, you know, you jump off the cliff and you grow wings on the way down. And so we just set that as like, you know, we have to be able to make costumes like stage costumes. We have to be able to integrate the motion capture sort of markers in, in such a way that they won't be visible to the audience, but we can still robustly track the motion. And so the work that we did you know, on that was another sort of big piece of what makes it possible now. Like now that we've sort of proven it out, you know, we know that we can continue to use this, this approach um, in future performances. So. You touched on a little, little bit when you talked about, you know, the fidelity and, and making sure that that mocap is, you know, high quality. What are other challenges that are still, that you're still facing today that really you think are important to tackle next before this technology can sort of move on to the, like the next evolution? I mean, it's still expensive and it's very sort of extremely sort of complex and involved. Ideally, so there's a few things that I'd like to see kind of going forward to we need to kind of figure out some stuff for, you know, one, having the ability to do kind of more shows of different, you know, of different scales of not having to have like a show necessarily be a huge show in order to, and then also being able to sort of tour shows beyond, um, you know, beyond just having to run them inside of mocap studios or in place. And so it's kind of like a couple sort of parallel efforts there, like, you know, one, you know, we're exploring kind of what it means to, you know, establish like a purpose-built sort of facility for doing not just sort of mocap performances, but to enable the, you know, performances that leverage mocap and projection technology and other technologies in such a way that, you know, you can bring in a show or an artist or a project, you know, and you're sort of amortizing the cost of, of like all that over like a long series of projects. And so any individual project does have to shoulder that cost. But then also looking at what can we do to enable us to sort of maintain that same level of fidelity in a potentially sort of simpler sort of setup from an equipment perspective, such that we could put something on a truck and quickly install that in, you know, in a theater or in a, you know, or in a performance space. You know, and so part of that is, you know, we're looking at, you know, using machine learning to simplify the the mocap marker sets that we have, or reduce the number of cameras that we need to to achieve the same level of fidelity. Kind of, um, and so there's there's places where we're doing research, um, and then just also just constantly sort of exploring other options, other mocap techniques. I have a dance performance um, that we've done uh, that I've done with the indigenous choreographer that where we're using XM suits and the quality isn't quite there. Um, and we're, but you know, we're kind of using that to look at kind of what do we need to do? Like, but that's a show that, that travels really easily. We've like, we run in a number of different spaces. We can go and we can set up an afternoon, but 
there are limitations in the quality of the, the capture as a result of the technology. So, you know, we're looking at what do we need to do or what can we do to sort of improve that quality and kind of meet, you know, sort of coming from the low end and coming from the high end of like full on optical capture. Is there somewhere in the middle where we find something, you know, that has all the right trade-offs in terms of cost and, and complexity, so. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of weeks is because of this passion for live music. And there's been a lot of talk, especially in Canada, with a lot of big artists not coming here because it's too expensive. Post-pandemic, everything seems to be more expensive. And then I was thinking about the ABBA performances in the UK and this giant stage thing. And one of the things that personally I found was as an audience member, getting myself psyched to sit at home and watch a performance is a lot harder than getting myself psyched to go to the Commodore to watch a performance. So can we talk a little bit about audiences and, you know, the work that you're doing to build, to create the space virtually where, you know, it does feel like an event that you're sharing, like a lot, like if you were to actually leave your house and do this. And the other part to that is the technology from, you know, the audience's perspective, like the entry, the barrier to entry is still a little bit high in some cases. One of the things that we talk about on the show is, is this idea of this sort of four audience model for performance. The four audiences being the live kind of in-person audience the sort of live stream audience, people just kind of want to watch the show and they can't make it to the live performance. And then there's sort of that immersive VR experience. And then also kind of an interactive sort of 3D desktop experience. And the intent there is really, you know, you've got different audiences with different, you know, different sort of opportunities for how they want to engage. You know, and one of the key things just to, to, you know, to your point is that when we design these sort of immersive experiences to kind of really make you feel as much like you're not that you're sort of necessarily in the crowd, but that you're in the world of the performance with the performers, but obviously not everyone has a VR headset. Not everyone has a, and so when we looked at the, you know, creating the kind of interactive, I'll say sort of desktop experience, we very much wanted that to be a way for people who wanted to interact, but had limited, you know, act, you know, who didn't necessarily have, from the very beginning, you know, we had decided that we would leverage, you know, what's called pixel streaming and basically cloud hosted, you know, uh, rendering so that, you know, even though, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a cost to that, it meant that your ability to experience the performance at the, you know, visual fidelity and the quality that we, we had designed it was not limited by the PC you had at home, you know, if you were connecting from a tablet or connecting from your laptop or whatever, you should still have that, that same experience. What it meant was that, you know, even though if we were trying to run like a, you know, a game that was running sort of 24 hours a day, like the economics doesn't, it's just, we'd be way too expensive to cloud render that, you know, unless you're a huge game company, the fact that these performances ran, you know, run for an hour or two hours meant that we could essentially roll the cost of the cloud hosting you know, into the ticket price, you know, it suddenly becomes kind of viable to do that. You know, you add a couple of dollars to the, to the ticket price and, you know, and now somebody can, from their iPad can be inside the world of the performance. Um, they can see the performers live. They can kind of move and explore the, the, the world, you know, that we've created for the, you know, for the show. So is the future, do you think, and I mean, I think I see it now there's the audience does seem to be more open to, 
experiencing performances in different ways. Like I think of my niece who watches concerts in roadblocks. Like I never would have imagined it, but I mean, she's much more primed for, you know, uh, sitting with a VR set than I would be like right off the bat. Is that kind of like the future is this sort of marriage of both, you know, the advancement in the technologies that you guys are making and the fact that audiences are more receptive to trying new ways to experience events? I, I'm the, the last person to, to suggest that like every live concert needs to also exist in VR, right? You know, um, but the fact that to, sort of depending on your audience and depending on your um, sort of ambitions as an artist, the fact that these you know opportunities exist and that these kinds of you know are you know performances and this way of performing, presenting, and telling stories is you know sort of more available to you in the creation of a live performance. I, I certainly hope um, continues to be something that excites people and, you know, and continues to grow and evolve. You know, one of the great things about, you know, and this is one of the great things about the Jill Barber concert that we did, you know, was here was a performer who, you know, neither she nor her audience are necessarily, you know, I mean, I'm sure some of them, you know, are tech savvy or, or but but certainly that's not, it's not a, a thing that, that binds them together, but, you know, we were able to tell us, you know, essentially tell a story about a 1950s nightclub in Vancouver that had closed years and years ago through the use of this technology in a way that really resonated with this audience for this jazz performer who, you know, who sings this sort of very almost 50 style jazz. Um, and the fact that so many of them said, you know, even just in watching live, like they felt that they'd been transported to another world and, and and that's what they enjoyed about it. It's something that kind of once again, I think sort of as we continue forward, that you know, we're always looking not just to like, what can we do in VR, but more as like, what can we do? And is VR or, you know, a live stream or sort of interactive, other kind of interactive experience or, you know, in-person experience, is that the way that's going to sort of best connect the audience to that? And then, and for me where it gets exciting is, are there different ways that we can present you know, tell the same stories, but to different audiences such that they, you know, they each have a, an experience that's sort of unique and compelling, regardless of how they engage with it. The moment that you're in now and the career that you've, uh, you know, created for yourself is very much a result of your various experiences and taking chances. If you had to say, you know, if let's say one of your kids asks you, dad, what's What's one piece of advice you give me for my career? What would that piece of advice be? So they do that because my my older daughter actually is just, you know, graduated from, uh, got her master's from McGill in neuroscience. And, you know, and I, and I don't know that it's necessarily for everyone, but it certainly has worked for me. I've always had a direction, but not necessarily a goal. And really throughout my career, I've just, you know, it's meant that I've kind of, you know, you have to kind of always keep your eye open for opportunities and, you know, especially around things that really kind of sort of engage your, you know, your imagination and your emotions and your sort of intellect. And, and as I said, it's kind of the only thing that's ever worked for me is to like kind of from wherever I'm at, you know, I'm just constantly thinking about kind of where do I want to take this and sort of being open to the fact that it might take me somewhere completely different. Um, and I just try not to worry about that too much. You know, it's like, 
you know, sort of, you sort of build on what you've done, but don't sort of worry not so much. If you, I think if you try too hard to like set some distant end goal and then work toward that, I mean, as I said, it may work for some people and it may work very well for some people. You might find yourself someplace where you've arrived at where you set out to go, but it's no longer kind of what you imagined. It's like, I mean, I guess part of it is like graduated from school when I was 21. Had I decided at 21 what my, you know, on a 20 year plan, I'd be looking back going like, you know, well, what did that 21 year old know about? <laughs> a child, am I really going to let that, like that child decide, you know, my entire future? <laughs> it's like. And that was our conversation with A. Thomas Goldberg. You can find out more about A. Thomas and the work that Showcap Entertainment is doing at showcap.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edland. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.